This is episode 384 of the AWS podcast, released on August 16, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Sam Lesher here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very special guest who also qualifies as a longtime listener, first-time caller, uh, Anjanish Babu, who is from Glam. Welcome to the podcast, Anjanish. Thank you, Simon. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. And as you mentioned, I've been a long-time follower of your podcast, uh, actually from day one, uh, from the episode zero, if I remember right. Wow. <laughs> so, and it, and it, it has been the primary source of... Uh, AWS knowledge, bite-sized knowledge before I decide to go into, do I need to deep dive, do I need to learn, or do I need to work forward? Well, so thank you for uh, inviting me on the show. It's a, it's a pleasure, and it's always great to have uh, listeners become contributors as well. So uh, it's the, uh, the virtuous cycle that we like. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and, and what Gardens and Museums at Oxford University, or University of Oxford, I should say, is. Yes, I'm the Systems Architect and Network Manager for Gardens and Museums within the University of Oxford. We are part of Gardens Libraries and Museums, or GLAM, which is a division in the university. So I look after the infrastructure, architecture, and operational uh, side of the infrastructure for five different units, all the museums and uh, the botanic gardens in the, in the University of Oxford. So usually anything related to heritage is part of GLAM at the university. And I'm the, um, so I'm a proud owner of a Glam IP, uh, Glam email address as well. So at Glam is one of the most coveted addresses in the university. So <laughs> I can imagine. Glad to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Do people believe you when you give them that address, or are they like, nah, come on, that's a fake address? <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it is. It's a very, very coveted email address. I can tell, and uh, and yeah. So any any time you see email address, it. And you do feel pride of, uh, of as you walk through the galleries, if you walk through the gardens, it's a huge sense of pride to say, we are changing a lot of things in the background. We are contributing to the user experience, the digital engagement. The kind of, we are kind of guardians of the culture, in mm, a sense, mm. across um, uh, in the university. So, and, it's just, and the best part of it is all of it is invisible. Nobody actually realizes. If you walk into the museum, you don't actually think, oh, there's like, 60 terabytes being held on the cloud. <laughs> There's 10. <laughs> oh, hang on. They used a snowball last month. No, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Everything is so invisible and that's the way we like it. Well, it's, it's interesting you talk about that, that responsibility and that, that, um, that weight that you carry in a, in, a, in a sense because that's, I mean, the heritage of the country is so long and storied and to, to be charged with maintaining that is a, it's, it's no small thing. No, it's... Um, I'm pleased to say there's a huge amount of dedicated resource where excellent minds put to this effort. And um, it's a massive effort at the university. It's curatorial, it's digital, it's every right down from the the team who works in the front of house uh, to the curators. And one thing, Simon, is that we can't display everything that we have. Mm. That's, un- that's unfortunate because mm. uh, I, I, my, my personal guesstimate is between 5 to 10% is is what we can actually actually display in the exhibition. And that's pretty much true for any museum, I would say. I was looking at your public data set on Amazon, and at the moment, uh, Smithsonian uh, has got a a brilliant data set published. Um, That is a challenge. We can't display everything. However, you can see everything. So I'll explain. If you come to the museum, you find, say, a samurai armor in one of the museums, which we have in two museums, in fact, and you want to know more, 
maybe some parts of the armor are not displayed due to environment condition or lack of space. You can ask a curator, you can ask front of house, and if you are knowledgeable about the subject or you want to know more, you can ask us and we'll bring it out of storage. We'll bring it to a study room wow. where you can explore, research to your heart's knowledge. So you can still access it even though it's not visible sort of uh, day to day? Absolutely. Um, that's that's the fundamental part of transformation. We want to bring everything. Uh, I'm hesitant to say online because that's just one mm. channel. Mm. You, we want to bring everything to users or visitors and engage it with fantastic different opportunities that we can and to which, to my mind, uh, at least, Amazon is a fundamental part of the journey. Let's talk a little bit about that that cloud journey. So you, you've been on a cloud journey over the last few years and, and it's always great to to talk to folks who have, have gone through that experience and have, have learned from others' experiences but then can kind of pay it forward to those who might be listening going, well, I'm thinking about this too, what should I think about? So maybe give us some context of the, the problems you were trying to solve for and, and how you approached the situation. Uh, that's, um, oh, well, more than glad to explain. So um, first out of the cloud, and uh, 2009, 2008 was barely kind of a blip on the horizon. We were all excited by, by we were doing live migration. I personally remember like January 2009, I was blown away by how VMware was doing live migration on version one of vSphere. Um, kind of heard about Amazon and the cloud. It was pretty, it was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it, it was cool. It was pretty cool. And uh, nobody believed us. And I, I remember demonstrating this to my brother-in-law. And he's uh, he's also in IT. He works in New Zealand. Uh, he's brilliant. And uh, and we were all blown away by saying, okay, how does this magic work? And uh, moving forward, uh, 2013, 2010, um, I was working in infrastructure in one of the museums, the Ashmole Museum. Ashmole is, is the oldest museum in the UK and possibly the world. There's no one who's challenged us to say, hey, we're older. <laughs> we're older. But, <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> so 1683, and the Um So I did ask my manager at the time, like, can we explore this cloud thing? And he said, yeah, go ahead. Let's have a think and see what's going on. Um, we kind of got a bit uh, overwhelmed by the amount of effort that we put in basically because S3 at the time was possibly, I, I'm getting my facts muddled up probably, was probably just API only. You couldn't That's navigate that like a traditional. There was, so I was looking there was no for GUI, there was nothing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I think I was looking for a migration part. So something, if I'm sort of waving my hands in the air now, because if you imagine a Venn diagram that says things I know and things that AWS can do, I couldn't find an overlapping zone within mm. those two circles. And 2013, 2014, I was kind of skeptical, like, what do we do? We have invested. Uh, and it's not enough confidence levels um, as an infrastructure officer. Still, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of prepping uh, our infrastructure. So one thing the museums don't do well, at least in the past, are having a long-term funding plan. Uh, we tend to get funding in bursts, and especially if there's a problem. So and for example, we lost a lot of images. We got money for fixing that. It wasn't optimal. And the university realized that in 2013, 2014, and there was a digital program put together to say, we need a robust digital strategy from a ground up approach. Like we need to make a basics right before we start delivering our promises to the world, to the nation, and to our visitors. Uh, 
that's where the program was started. And there's a huge investment and really forward thinking on part of the university to say, let's put in a lot of resources, money and skill sets into building something that's going to be here forever, literally forever. Um, and during the transformation, there was changes in how desktops were being managed. There's changes in how we manage the backend infrastructure. The huge amount of monumental changes meant that the fundamental part of why we are here, the digital assets need to be preserved or at least safeguarded while these changes are happening. And we were looking at traditional storage. We were looking at all kinds of things. And I looked at saying, um, why not Amazon? Why not cloud in general? And by the time I reviewed Amazon, there was a major change in how things are done, how things are being presented, how easy is it to go. And I must give credit to Pradi um, and um, Pete Barlow, who was our account manager at the time, Nick Jefferson, who we were in constant touch in 2015. They knew there was no business at the time from us. We were just asking firing queries, meeting up. From my, from my point, it was a random chat, but they were there in terms of saying, right, this is one way to do it, this is one way to do it. And we go away, think about it. There's no business to Amazon. 2015 to 2017, there's no business. So they were just conversations, and that was a very fundamental part of how we shaped Amazon. Um, moving forward. And 2017, we as a division, Gardens and Museums, part of the, the GLAM infrastructure program where we improved it, digital estate, we signed the first ever public cloud contract within the University of Oxford. Um, and that was a huge, huge change. That was a huge barrier. We make no, um, it was, it, there's no um, kind of, um, underestimation to the way it's a huge effort to get that done going past security, going past the usual, I wouldn't say resistance, going past the usual kind of, um, the caution, concerns. I guess, the, the sort of caution and, and just, uh, wanting to understand more yeah. about what the, the changes you're proposing. Exactly. I think, uh, in a, in an usual environment, if, even if I was in an, in a usual environment, if I was in a private sector or a small company, a big company, there would be a massive resistance to change. That's usual. But when you overlay, heritage and culture, when you overlay education and there were sensitivities around data sets and ownership of data, the problem is compounded 10 times. And the way I looked at it is like, who else was doing the cloud? And part of that was uh, helped massively. I think uh, I was listening to Theresa Carlson's podcast uh, last week, where you mentioned the, the government, the UK government, the civil services, really forward in terms of the cloud journey. That helped. When I looked around, the civil service were way ahead of the private sector, the rest of the world, and saying, okay, we are having cloud first and we are having cloud only in fact in some cases. And that's the template I said, look, if the approach is good enough for Houses of Parliament, if it's good enough for DVLA, if it's good enough for Home Office, where are we? Why don't we place ourselves in this kind of map in terms of data? And that helped broker the change. And we worked with the Crown Commercial procurement service to sign off the G Cloud contract, which again, uh, Therese has mentioned in the podcast. So all that helped signing the contract and getting that done. Before that, took a month of uh, credits to do a prototyping, proof of concept. There wasn't much done. It was more of familiarizing ourselves with interface. And that was a huge change. We could see, okay, now there's a web interface to S3, there's Snowball. And uh, there's so many different things that we could 
onboard storage. And mind you, at that time, that was like January 2017, mm. or was it December 2016? Um, and moving through the year, we had about 60 to 80 terabytes of data that needs to be rushed into some sort of safe storage. Yeah. And it was noble that did it. And did you do it yourself or did you get a, a partner to help you? How did you feel that, that, as you mentioned, that sort of familiarity or skills gap that was there at the start? It was, uh, I did it myself. So uh, that bit was, I think, at least for the first year, I did myself uh, with Intel Resources. We got involved with partners in second half of 2019 when we looked at an online collections project, which uh, actually we did a webinar two weeks ago with Amazon. So the online collections project was an, another groundbreaking experience. So that came down further on the maturity model. If you look at the graph, in a sense, a basic hyper, hybrid cloud storage, EC2 instances, using a bit of that and data, this app stream. And then we started looking at serverless. That's where the online project came in. At that point, I knew that, okay, the project has got resources. I know how to do this and we don't have the resources to actually deliver this. And we had brilliant web developers working within IT services, central part of university who, who deliver services. That's when we started looking at approaching partners and uh, that was a really good decision because we consider our partners, we've got a couple of partners we work with and we consider our partners part of our own team in terms of um, sharing knowledge, learning from each other. and. That's worked out quite well. So um, whether it's going to the partner for basic uh, whiteboarding or in costing, I must say, um, for uh, despite all the billion things that Amazon has put out there, the cost cal calculator isn't probably one that I can work with. So a lot of my questions to my partner saying, okay, we need this. Tell me what the real world implication of this is. Then they go away, come back to us. They know the context. So that is really, really helpful in getting money for projects or doing proof of concepts or prototyping or piloting and working with a partner on the online collections project has, has proved itself because it was originally a pilot and it just rolled out of production because there wasn't anything else to do. There's no questions of around scalability, security, and it's just switched over to production. That's a testament for the project team as well, but mm -hmm. uh, due credit to Marcus who led the project. Um, it's a testament to how how well things are turned up. So, so you touched on the fact that you sort of started off with a, a traditional architecture with EC2 and, and S3, et cetera, but you've also mentioned serverless in the context of that online connections, collections, I should say, uh, application. Can you tell us from an architectural standpoint how you're approaching things today? So um, with the traditional architecture, the way I started off was looking at the technologies and the process we are familiar with. For example, moving storage, what's the lowest common denominator? It's a file share. Uh, where does the file share overlap with Amazon? So if you, if you go back to the Venn diagram, as I was explaining, now the circle started overlapping. So Amazon can do Snowball, uh, which presents a file share, which, um, which when we started off didn't do SMB. And midway through our project, it's Amazon Snowball started supporting SMB integrated with Active Directory. That was a huge step forward. Then we could say, okay, it's a file share. Drop your files in there and it gets consumed as so and ship it back. That overlapping architecture was essential. 
as we move towards more mature work applications in the cloud, so um, use on the other other side of the, the born digital, born born cloud, born in the cloud, it's like growing the cloud. I'm not trying, I'm trying to work out. Are we in the teenage phase in the cloud? So that's <laughs> when we start looking at. So, so that that approach makes uh, for a different architecture because you're not bogged down by how do we look at storage, how do we look at retention policy, it's one click away. So that architecture looks more like more of scalability. How do we uh, develop a microservices architecture in terms of, okay, let's not look at this from a simple website point of view. We want to develop things beyond a website. So that's what changes fundamentally our architecture, the security posture. And uh, essentially, um, security becomes how do we log into Amazon and how do we log in the backend and how we manage our entry points into the infrastructure. Um, that was what uh, drove the architecture decisions. Uh, and it's quite a consultative approach. We had multiple parties in, in the picture. We had project teams, we had IT developers in the picture, we had apartment developers and Amazon solution partners. Uh, and we, and the good thing is we could always go away and do pockets of prototyping to say whether that worked or not. And that proved very, very good way to develop these further. Uh, we could translate a lot of on-premise networking knowledge. I'm a network enthusiast. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of networking, networking knowledge could be translated and logging. We also advancing our firewall uh, work because we use uh, a certain brand of firewalls on-premise and we are gearing up to say, how can we build the same firewall as a service within Amazon. Right now we use the FAS, but is there an opportunity where we can uh, deploy the firewall that we use on-premise onto Amazon so we have a single skill set to work with? That's the kind of approach we are looking at. So we're still kind of trying to overlap what we know on-premise, but it's more of skill sets and more of high-level concepts rather than the foundational aspects that we used to. Yeah, so it's it's skills versus architecture to some degree where – you want a common skill set, but the architecture you can be flexible in what makes sense at the time. And what about from a uh, machine learning perspective? Is there any work you've been doing in that space in terms of either uh, uh, interaction with the, the visitors that, that come to the, uh, the the particular locations or, or ways that they access the data that's available? Yes, the machine learning uh, journey started off last year, early last year. So I was thinking um, it's, an, it's uh, an answer looking for a question from 2017. We came across machine learning 2018, the building up. And 2018, I was thinking, it's a it's an answer that we can work with, but what is the question we are trying to answer? Mm. Um, and towards 2019, as we uh, grew, I think we've got about 14 different Amazon accounts now uh, under the organization. So our maturity and confidence, especially with the partners coming on, a lot of operational level resources was taken away, the the orbits were taken away, so we could focus on the core strategy. Um, At the Amazon Summit in London, uh, that's when I thought, okay, this is the right time to think about it. Uh, I went to Pradi and Nick, they were both at the the conference, I thought, can we do a proof of concept machine learning model using our collections? And the collection that I had in mind was the the coins collection, Ashmore has got a huge collection of coins. I said, if we train a model, can the model guess whether a coin is heads or tails? That is a model that we can all relate to. That's a result we can all relate to. Can we look at that? 
and everybody's equally excited. So we got in touch with uh, the Amazon's machine learning team, public sector team, and um, the, uh, Nicholas Metallo, who's a brilliant data scientist. Um, we worked together with uh, Jerome, he's the e-curator with the Ashmore and Coins Collection. Um, it took about 40 days, and the machine learning model that we developed could not only um, guess, uh, not only infer whether it's heads or tails, so it could actually go beyond and have classification and say, can you do a related search? It used uh, multiple levels, BERT and uh, neural networks. Over, uh, I think it was trained on 300,000 images of coins, all publicly available wow. within the national lane. And that was a major turning point. Like, look, this is huge. And we could also orient the coins because a, a lot of work with digitizing coins was manual. So we got armies of volunteers who come in, photograph coins. Uh, we got the obverse and the reverse, heads and tails to me. Um, the coins may not be oriented properly for the collections. So you still need to turn them a bit, and that takes a large amount of labor. With, with machine learning developed on Amazon, the coins can be oriented correctly, so they're exactly facing 90 degrees, uh, which is just done by actually training the model with the wrong information. So you could say, this is 130 degrees, not right, go back to 90. So that was the way the model was trained. So by feeding it information that's wrong and telling it it's wrong, and that's how we got to the point saying, the coins could be automatically rotated. That work in itself, uh, if we were to run it against our collections, would say what two to three years. That's <laughs> the curator's oh, view, no. not, not mine. Um, and we can do a lot more. We can identify labels because a lot of traditional objects are photographs of objects. So, and those objects may not exist anymore. Uh, they've been lost. Uh, they've been accidentally destroyed, intentionally destroyed, or something's happened to them, like intentionally destroyed in balls or. Uh, they're no longer there. Those objects, the photographs of the objects are themselves now an object because that's valued. Mm, mm. And the identity of the object might be a label in the photograph. So you will have a matchbox with a label in the photograph saying matchbox. I'm just giving an example. Yeah. So you could run machine learning against that. So I was in a Amazon recognition session last week and uh, uh, I was blown away by the capabilities and the kind of commoditizing the application layer is such an innovation and it has got huge potential for us going forward. Well, I, th I think your point also about knowing what the question is you're trying to answer is, is key. Um, knowing that there's a, a service that can do something is good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's out there, something can yes. detect a vision or, or what have you, but, but knowing what you want to use it for is important. I think that's the, in a way, the joy of uh, doing IT in the modern era is that you know you have a whole lot of answers you're just waiting for the right question, and when you bring it in, if you can, if you can be saving years of effort, I mean that's that's a huge amount of time that we use for much higher value things. Absolutely, and uh, the confidence. And I, I, uh, I may have mentioned this in another presentation. I look at organizations. It's more of that's like I realize that organizations can also be treated like the uh, OSI model. Um, I'm sure you might be familiar <laughs> with the OSI model, the seven layers. So. You can also treat organizations in a similar manner. So if you work from the physical layer all the way to the application layer, you could actually go through levels of organization in the same manner. So physical layer, you're dealing with storage. And as you go up the stack, you're delivering value by looking at applications that are the top end, like machine learning um, or work app streams that 
adds value without worrying about the rest of the stack, literally within the organization. So uh, there's like a moment like, okay, hang on. So organizations do behave like OSI. I'm sure people also behave like OSI models. <laughs> Whether we like it or not. <laughs> yes. I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, that is quite a, that's quite a revelation for me. So, um, and I quite enjoy it because, uh, as, you say, as you say, the question, I think that's more important. And we, uh, we are fortunate. We work in GLAM, we work in the Oxford University, we work in Heritage. We are fortunate because we have a huge data set. Uh, the university is custodians of uh, this amazing data that we can work with, we can deliver value with, and we want to put it out there for researchers or visitors, for anyone who's interested. I think that's that's what we are here for. Definitely, definitely. Now, Anjanash, if you reflect back on this journey, what would you say some of the highlights were? And secondly, what advice would you give to someone who's about to undertake their own cloud journey? Um, resources. Never underestimate the resource that you need. Um, and training. When we started the journey, all the training was, uh, there was plenty of training available, but context-based training is very important. So, and finding a partner is extremely important. So I would I would say, don't rush into finding a partner. I would say, look at what your organization is. Look at, try to look at tools. Uh, speak to your account manager, identify your account manager, work with the solution architect, and try to frame the training, the skill sets within the context of your organization. And that's going to be hugely useful. You can get credits for doing prototyping or piloting, and that's valuable but hands-on experience. Nothing counts. And, always make sure you set time aside. Um, learning uh, public cloud isn't traditionally, okay, I'll keep aside um, my VMware work, let's focus on cloud. You have to set aside time and you have to keep track of your finances as well. There's a lot more tooling now available to look at cost optimization, to look at upfront costs, spot instances, and there's a lot more free training available. There's even labs available. Mm. Uh, that is what I would suggest. Uh, um, and lastly, not least importantly, is actually um, listen to your podcast as well. <laughs> that gives an idea. <laughs> I would agree with you on that advice. That's great advice. I, think, <laughs> I would agree because you have to, you have, there's no way you can keep up with all the information being put out there, uh, whether it's a Jeff Barr, whether it's anybody else who's on the Amazon spectrum. There's a huge amount of information. Um, you have to look at bite-sized chunks before you decide which way you go vertical and deep dive into it or even prototype. And it's okay to let go stuff. You do work mm. on something mm. and you think, do I keep going on this? You don't have to. If you think the organization's context is not worth it, put it aside, but not, I call it a bag of tricks. Uh, so you put it aside in a bag of tricks, leave it for another day and bring it together. When you, So um, one example is we worked on an image resizing tool. Uh, I had a concept, we worked with solution architects, we worked with a partner, and we developed proof of concept. It's there, but it's ready to be used, whether it's in the backend architecture, um, and make it as modular as possible. Uh, yeah. I could go on and on forever, but it really is the context. So you have to look at context-based skills, context-based organization maturity, and how you want to take forward. Definitely. And I'd also highly recommend the free tier as well. When you create an, an AWS account, you get a free tier, which... Uh, Let's you experiment with a lot of things. And also on the console, there are lots of uh, demonstrations and workshops, which include uh, not just the the instructions, but videos and also uh, cloud formation and other automation too. So there's, there's many ways to get access to that. But uh, 
And Janash, how do we find all this great content you've been speaking about? Where, where do we visit Glam online? So um, we've got the main website, glam.ox.ac.uk, um, OX for Oxford, AC as the academic um, domain. So glam.ox.ac.uk gives you the entry point into everything that uh, that is within the University of Oxford, and that's Glam. Depending on where you want to go from there, you can select the museum, you can select the libraries, and there's always uh, highlight objects within each museum. And that's where I would highly recommend. And once we are open, I would highly suggest all our sites are free. Uh, Botanic Gardens and Harcourt, there's a nominal charge for entry. All the museums within the University of Oxford are free to, uh, free to enter. And um, highly recommend Listing that, we've got guided tours. And if you want to spend time at the cafe, it's all open. It's a tremendous cakes in Oxford. <laughs> Not that you're biased. It is, it is a tremendous resource. <laughs> and the, the online site, I mean, some of the photography itself is just stunning. Um, so it actually does give you a, a great experience. There's virtual tours as well. So it is a, a fantastic resource. And Janesh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing a little bit about your own journey today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here, Simon, and thank you for all your work on the podcast. Anytime. And uh, thank you all for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.